The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. This is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. You are listening to Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And tonight's topic is why the cost of medical services will continue to rise. It is not going down. Don't expect it. Don't look for it. It is not going to happen. Why? Because there actually is not one person or constituency in the United States interested in lowering medical costs. So if you walk up to a person and say, would you like medical costs lower, they'll say, oh, yeah, they're too high. And you ask them if they personally would be willing to do anything to lower costs. They'll say, no, 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 no. Someone else should do it. it. It's worse than chicken little trying to get someone to help her bake a loaf of bread. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is what is going on and who are these people who who have no incentive or interest in uh, impacting this. I mean, everybody complains that the, the price is too high, so to speak, and the cost is too much, and the costs keep growing as a percent of GNP. But nobody takes a look at, at what's going on and what these changes are. So tonight, we're going to take a look. And the sincere truth is the premise is false. The premise that anyone wants health care costs to be reduced is simply false. Now, maybe each individual wants to pay less, but nobody wants the cost to go down. And so what I'm going to do is talk about the situation and give you solutions that can actually reduce your personal health care costs no matter what. In other words, it's going to work. Can't, it can't fail because, guess what, it's been proven in the past to work. The solution is obvious. It's in front of our face and uh, we can access it. Okay, so what's going on? It turns out, let's just start with insurance companies. When I was in medical school, uh, I was we taught that thank God for insurance companies. Thank God for insurance companies because the lower the health care costs, the higher the profits are for insurance companies. So insurance companies are interested in lowering health care costs, and that's why we need them. We, you know, we don't like insurance companies, you know, because it's doctors, hospitals, well, medical schools are associated with teaching hospital. We know the medical, that insurance companies can cut back on the amount of money that doctors and hospitals and health care professionals receive, but it's a necessary evil, and they have a good position, and their position is that uh, they want to make a profit, and the only way they can make a profit is by holding down health care costs. This is absolutely, totally, and completely false. And I didn't get an inkling of this until I left medical school to go to business school. So the way it, in four years I got the medical degree and the MBA in healthcare administration. 
because I went to medical to business school, and I went to courses called insurance, and I actually worked in administration for a hospital with the very real issues that they had, and I was actually part of their attempt to infiltrate the uh, business health alliance in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Yes, hospital flew me out to Minneapolis-St. Paul to talk to businessmen, understand what it was they want, just so we could figure out how to infiltrate them and get more money for, of course, the hospitals, and less, of course, for the insurance companies. And so I found this very curious. But in the course of doing all this, this whole new understanding, access to information about the inner workings of insurance companies all of a sudden opened up to me. Now, insurance is is pretty boring and it can be complicated, but let me use an analogy which is used in the construction industry. It's called cost plus billing. Okay, cost plus billing. What is cost plus billing? That means you figure out what it costs you, whatever that might be, and then you bill an additional amount. Now, Usually, cost plus billing is you figure out what you think it's going to cost, whatever that might be, and you take a fixed percentage, you multiply your cost by that percentage, and that becomes the amount that you add to it. So obviously, the bigger the bill, the bigger the expenses you can mount up, then the bigger your profit, because your profit is a percent of your overhead or your stated costs. And of course, you get to state your costs. Okay, so those of you who understand construction, you, you got that concept, cost plus building. So you build a cost plus a percent of the cost. So the higher the cost, the higher the percent. Okay, gotcha. Well, I was very uh, shocked to find that most insurance companies and this is as of, this is the dark ages, okay, the dark ages, 1982, 1982, that's a long time ago. They build on cost plus. And so for many employers who have health care costs for their employees, the health insurance company basically just processes the claims, and they take a percent of claims processing. Now, a percentage of the claims. So obviously, the insurance company wants healthcare costs to be as high as they can possibly be. Why? Because their revenue is cost plus. Now, I was in medical practice from 1990 to 2000. And so during this time, there was a big discussion. Of course, you patients were not included in this discussion. The public was not included in this discussion. But an incurious discussion going on behind closed doors, and you, the public, were not admitted, and most doctors actually were excluded. But since I had an MBA, you know, some things were leaked to me. And so I'll share them with you. The thing that was leaked was that it was considered very good for an insurance company to have cost plus 7%. Cost plus 7%. And the way this was explained or publicized was that Blue Cross Blue Shield, this was in back in the dark ages of 1990-something, Blue Cross Blue Shield had claims expense, in other words, an expense above and beyond claims of 7%. So 7% was the amount of the profit plus the so-called overhead or expenses of Blue Cross Blue Shield. Therefore, Blue Cross Blue Shield was considered to be very efficient, very efficient. And those of you, many of you don't know, but I'll tell you, that if you have something called Medicare, your claims, for the most part, are processed by Blue Cross Blue Shield. That gets a percent of every dollar paid in medical claims. And so this is why medical expenses, as far as the insurance company is concerned, will continue to rise. They do not want them to go down because they're on a cost-plus basis. And so I had this uh, 7% number kicking around 
in my uh, in my head. And as I researched tonight's show, I said to myself, I wonder, I wonder what that number is for today, right? <laughs> I was shocked. I was absolutely uh, amazed that there's something called, they've given a big name now, medical loss ratio. Medical loss ratio. That means the that 7% number I, I told you, that's the medical loss ratio. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, isn't it great a 7% medical loss ratio. And I wonder what the medical loss ratio is these days. <laughs> Hold on to your seat. Just, are you ready for this? 35%. 35%. Yes, 35%. So that means that insurance companies now keep 35% of the gross health care dollar. And this is in, in uh, states where the feds have issued something called the medical loss waiver. That means they waiver the 20%. So I said, for most insurance companies, they want to limit this number to 20%. Now, whenever you limit profits to 20%, what you're really creating is a floor of 20%. So what that means then is insurance companies, as they now exist, have just about zero risk because by law, they are allowed to calculate their total health bills, take 20% of that, add it, it's 120% now, and then charge premiums to cover 120% of what they expect healthcare bills to be. They are allowed to actually project that. So, of course, we now have another layer of increased health costs, which is the insurance company now has a guaranteed permitted profit of 20%, and they have the luxury, right, obligation, whatever you want to call it, to project into the future what they think their expenses are going to be and charge 20% over that. And I was talking to someone the other day, a client of mine, and trying to, you know, explain this to her. And she says, oh, but, you know, it's really good that they're making insurance companies give a refund to subscribers if the health expenses are below a certain amount. Now, you step back and listen to that. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, they only have to hand back money if the profits exceed 20% of all the medical bills that they paid. And this is why health insurance companies have standard of care they enforce for doctors, demanding that doctors do annual physical exams for every single patient. All that does is drive up health care costs. And the medical industrial complex itself, which has done the research, has said the annual physical exam does not contribute to the health of individuals who choose to submit to it. But the insurance companies mandate that every individual get a complete physical exam every year. The doctor's supposed to do this. Let the doctor order every screening test under the sun. I won't say every, but a lot more than what most doctors would feel to be prudent. And so there's a lot of things insurance companies did over the years, even when I was in practice back in the gay 90s, that you said, well, geez, if they just didn't do this, then healthcare costs would be so much lower. Of course, the reason why they were doing it was because the medical loss ratio permitted by the government is a certain amount. Now it's at 20%. That is pretty darn steep. And just to let you know how steep that is, to put in a guaranteed profit layer of 20% for the insurance company, do you know that the profits for hospitals, for the hospital industry, is only 5%? Yeah, the profits for the uh, hospitals is only 5%. But we don't think, I don't say we, I guess the government that's regulating the insurance companies doesn't think that 5% profit is reasonable. So 20%. So 
20% profit, minimum profit for an insurance company. So let's take a look at this 35%. Well, 35% is when someone gets a medical loss waiver. Now, medical loss waiver means, listen carefully, in a particular state, the number of insurance companies is so small that you could have monopoly pricing driving up prices. And so what does the government say? Well, since these monopoly, these companies are so few and they could cause a monopoly and they could drive up prices, let's increase the profit allowance by 50% to offset any possibility. There's no reason for it because you know they're going to have 20% profit because there's lack of competition, right? If you're worried about insurance companies making it, then you want to put in the waiver in states where there's tons of competition, driving profits down and possibly driving insurance companies out of the state because, of course, the prices would be too low because of competition. But you're in a state with no competition where the one or two insurance companies can keep the prices as high as they want. That's where you can hold the medical loss waiver at, for the profit margin at 20%. There's no need to raise it because the insurance companies, one, have the market power to get that 20%, and two, they're so huge, they have economies of scale. So, of course, their overhead is going to be less. So, we have the medical loss waiver. And therefore, because we have this tightly regulated, and with Obamacare it's even raised to 35%, holy cow, there's no way any insurance company is trying to stay in business, grow, give fat paychecks to its managers, whatever you want to do with profits, would in their wildest dreams think of reducing healthcare costs because all of the financial centers are in the absolute opposite direction. Now, back when I was in practice, there had a lot of reasons for this. Said, well, you know, we want to have a medical loss waiver allowance, a special set-aside profit allowance, which basically just is a guarantee of profits to keep the insurance companies from ever, A, going out of business, or B, having to manage themselves with any executive skill, right? No, no big deal. Because we don't want insurance companies to deny claims because of profits. But how many of you have ever had a claim denied by an insurance company? It happens all the time, doesn't it? it? Happens all the time. So guaranteeing profits to this industry has not made healthcare more available to citizens. Alright, so insurance companies, they do not want healthcare bills to decline. There's just, there is just no way. Well, what about, what about hospitals? Do hospitals want healthcare costs to go down? Well, you can't tell it by their bills, can you? No. So hospitals, they want to charge whatever they can. For Christ's sake, they only have a 5% profit margin as it is. And, of course, they're especially anxious about any, any talk about reducing health care costs. That's the last thing they want to hear about. People talk about uh, cancer, end-of-life care, um, you know, reducing, these, reducing costs. And so they've got this new thing now. So they, they figured out that a fair percent of um, health care is delivered literally literally, at the end of life. And this is, um, in the last year of life, people consume uh, several hundred thousand dollars of care. And, and so what this is, okay, fine. What we want then is we don't want people dying in the hospital. So if we can fix it, so if people are not dying in the hospital, then that's going to that's gonna take care of it. That is going to address the issue. And so the number of people dying in the hospital then became a surrogate measure 
um, for end-of-life care or costs uh, for end-of-life care. Well, what happened was they answered the hospital. Okay, let's take a look at this um, diagnosis called cancer. And we're going to see if people, fewer people are dying in the hospital, so fewer cancer patients. And so what do they do? They use that as a figure. And so they decided that target number, if fewer cancer patients were dying in the hospital, then they would be meeting their goal, which is reducing um, end-of-life, inappropriate, high-cost, end-of-life care. Well, what happened? What happened was the number of people dying in the hospital plummeted. But the amount of healthcare expenses consumed by a cancer patient in the final year of life actually increased. How did this happen? They just transferred the person to hospice care when they were about to die. And so this little bit of gaming the system created a situation where the metric, which is number of cancer patients dying in the hospital, all of a sudden became separated from cost of end-of-life care. And so the hospital costs of revenues continued to climb. Now, this is, this is very, um, a little bothersome just kind of a digression here because obviously then hospitals and doctors are able to tell when they are giving futile care. They are able to tell when the care they're giving is going to likely result in death. We can see this because patients are being transferred to hospice just before they die and just when the bills are being maximized. So the hospitals have no interest whatever in uh, reducing health care costs, none at all. Uh, they have an interest in reducing their particular uh, revenue uh, income and if they have to do that by decreasing someone else's, then, of course, uh, they'll, they'll do that. But what about employers? These are people who employ people. Are they interested in lowering health care costs? Well, they have been, yes. But I think the employers simply had to wave the, uh, the surrender flag, and they lost the battle when the Affordable Health Care Act was passed. Now, they just avoid offering health care or I should say health insurance, and uh, resign themselves. They just have another piece of regulation to deal with. Well, what about, what about drug companies? Do they want to lower health care costs? Absolutely not, because the drug companies are indirect beneficiaries. So the more doctor visits you have, the more drugs are, drugs are prescribed. The more hospital visits you have, the more drugs are prescribed. The more days in the hospital, the more drugs are used. So... The drug companies, no surprise there, are, are not interested at all in lowering health care costs. This doesn't interest them. Um, and, of course, they raise their prices regularly. And this is not singling out drug companies because drug company prices are raised regularly, doctor prices are raised regularly, um, insurance premiums are raised regularly. So all of these prices are, are, are pretty much going up. Now, what about the patient? What about the patient? You know, patients like say, oh, healthcare costs are so high. Um, what's going to be done? I can't afford these bills. I need help to pay the bills. So let's take a look at the psychology and what's going on in the mind of the patient. Okay, so you have to take a look at what the position of the patient. Patients already pay compulsory premiums in advance. So what's the patient's posture? As a consumer, this individual wants to get their money's worth, right? That's right. So if I've already paid this health insurance premium, I want to get my money's worth. I'm going to show up. I'm going to get this annual physical. I'm going to take these drugs. I'm going to get these tests done. The only problem is, there's two problems here. One is the fact uh, that they've already paid is just not true. They have yet to pay the final uh, bill, which is, of course, paying with their life. 
paying with death, dismemberment, and torture. So the prospective patient doesn't realize that they have yet to pay the full price. Also, the patient has the illusion that someone else is paying for their consumption and that the amount that strangers pay for their consumption of medical services is a measure of society's caring for them. And so there are consumers that look at it two ways. One, this is my chance to rob my neighbor. Or two, I am a person, say, have maybe a lesser income, whatever that income is. Maybe it's poverty, maybe it's welfare, maybe it's just lower middle class, or maybe it's just not what you want it to be, whatever the number is. And the rich people, whoever they are, wherever they might be, are actually paying the taxes for my consumption. And this is perceived as a debt that society's wealthy owe to the poor to show that they care. Now, focusing on health services as a debt that is owed by one social class to another social class, and that the consumption of this health care is simply poor people doing their part in helping the wealthy to pay an imaginary social or cultural debt. This construct totally distracts those who consume medical services from the ineffectiveness and literally the danger of these services. I mean, that 40% of people who die each year in the United States die because they receive medical care, not because they were sick. And when those on Medicaid want the most and the most expensive, the emotion of envy is being exploited here. Because people, the, the poor people perceive that they're getting what someone else has, what a rich person could afford. And they equate the amount of health services to being healthy, not only that, but to being a worthwhile person. Of course, this is definitely promoted and really pushed in the media as well. We know this is not true. Why do we know? We know it's not true because the poor are so sick. So if the healthcare really was so valuable and healthy, then people who were poor would be the healthiest. So that is not true. Now we have the elderly. The elderly perceive that they've paid taxes for this care, Medicare, and it is owed to them. And so they're collecting a debt, getting what is rightly theirs. But nobody stops to examine the impact of these services on their health. I mean, Dr. Levinson coming out with his report that 180,000 Medicare people are killed every year by their health care. This was back in 2012. I'm sure it hasn't gotten any better. So... Nobody stops to consider that what they are getting is simply lethal. And what they are participating in is a big con, and they are the mark. Unfortunately, 40% of those who like to play this game pay with their lives. And the remaining 60%, without exception, pay with their fortune. So it's the health care and the health care tax built into the system is the invisible hand that keeps people poor and makes the middle class poor. So imagine the impact of an autistic child on a family that's, that's poor. Imagine the impact of an additional $200 in rent for a poor family. What does $200 happen to be, more or less, the increase in property taxes borne by the average landlord per unit to pay school taxes? which are used to pay for drugging kids with Ritalin while they're in school and for county health clinics for the poor to sterilize them and keep them from having babies. So the poor are not getting a free ride by any means. The average poor person consumes far less than $200 a month in birth control and maternity care. And that goes to government cronies. So the middle-class homeowners get a tax break. And if you're in a state, you're familiar with the tax break to homeowners versus landlords. Everyone says, yeah, that's great. God, those landlords. But the landlords, they have to pass it on to the tenants. So really what's happening is you're doubling the square foot tax for the poor. So the middle class owners get a tax break and escape the brunt 
of this tax. So consuming medical services satisfies people's feeling of envy. I want what you have or what I think you have. I want you to care for me. I want what I've already paid for. I'm really not paying for what my neighbor is. These are all emotional, you know, envy, uh, anger, the desire to steal from somebody else. All of these negative emotions that everybody feels at some moment in their life are being fed and fueled by the high cost of health care. And this is a, a very socially acceptable type of envy to feel and a very socially acceptable type of theft to engage in. And so people don't want to pass up this opportunity. And so since nobody's examining the actual value of the services delivered to them by the medical establishment, there's no feeling on the part of the consumer that these services are of no value and should not be consumed even if one were paid to do so. I mean, that is actually how deadly health care is. So let's just review the usual excuses here. It's already paid. It's owed to me. Someone else is paying for it. I'm getting something for nothing. The rich are paying the taxes for this, and it's owed to me. The not so rich, or it's it's a way for the poor to punish the rich. Or I already paid premiums. And I want to get my money's worth. I already paid taxes for this, and I'm going to consume it. That's what the elderly say. If I get harmed, I like this one. I can sue and get paid. And the answer, of course, is no. You can't. Why? Because 90% of all the harm is done while the doctor is following the standard of care. And malpractice, by definition, is only when the doctor deviates from the standard of care. And, of course, you say, well, it might work. It might work. Would you really take your your car to a mechanic who might fix it? Probably not. You shouldn't take your body to a medical industrial complex that might fix it. And next, consuming medical services means I'm important. Consuming medical services means those providing it really care about me. And so that's another thing. Is we have to dispense the term health care because there's nothing healthy about this and it has nothing to do with caring. So medical services would be a more appropriate kind of neutral term. Okay, so we got it. Nobody wants to lower health care costs. Now, who else doesn't want to lower health care costs? You would think the hospitals, the insurance companies, the um, patients, this would be a pretty big coalition, but we've got an even bigger coalition. 17% of the population is employed in healthcare, and nobody's lining up for a pay cut. In fact, I'm in Panama, and I hear that people in America need to earn more money. So nobody working in healthcare is saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a pay cut so healthcare costs can go down. No, no it's not happening. So there you have it. There is no coalition of citizens to reduce price or even consumption of medical services. The only nagging chink in the armor is that this demographic, wealthy, white women, yes, are refusing to immunize their children. This is, this is a problem. This is a problem. Because the whole premise for giving health care to the poor is that rich have it, right? So the reason poor people should have, have health care and the reason everyone should be taxed to pay for it is because rich people have access to this. And because we're a fair and good society, we want poor people to have access to what the rich have access to because of their money. So when these wealthy white women stood up and refused immunize their children, this was, this was the problem. So rather than encourage the poor to imitate the rich out of envy, which is the rationale for giving the poor, getting the poor to accept medical services in the first place, the propaganda machine is portraying this refusal of the wealthy to consume medical care as they're not caring about the poor and wanting to spread disease to the children of the poor, naturally. So simultaneously, just by the way, a 100% vaccinated preschool class 46% of them got pertussis, even though 100% were vaccinated. So clearly, being vaccinated is itself a risk factor for pertussis. In other words, it causes pertussis. This is very straightforward. So if you take 100, if you take, uh, you know, 100 kids at random, follow them for the next year, how many are going to get pertussis? I guarantee less than 46%. But another thing, i got news for you. The children of the wealthy never even come that close to the children of the not-so-wealthy. 
So if these diseases are spread by person-to-person contact, the actions of the rich and what they do for their children is truly irrelevant. Truly irrelevant. I, 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 can, I can tell you firsthand. First of all, I went to, I went to Harvard. Many of you know I went to Harvard? There's a rigorous screening process to get into Harvard. Not only do you have to be deemed intelligent, but that helps. But you have to be seriously docile. You know, you have to be the kind of person who, if ever they got ticked off, would never think of of speaking up about it. And so, you know, the poor people who are allowed to interact with not so poor people are very heavily screened. And furthermore, I went to Harvard when some pretty hefty celebrities went there. You know, JFK's daughter was there, supposedly. Of course, she was never cited. I never saw her, and most people never did either. So the children of the wealthy, first of all, are so few, but second of all, are so separated from everyone else that it's just not realistic to expect that they're going to spread a person-to-person contact type disease to so-called poor people or the children of the poor. Now, the only thing I can tell you from personal experience is I was a physician and I homeschooled my children. And my children did not come into contact with any more than, I would say, four kids a day. That would be a high number. And I was only middle class. In other words, the level of contact that the children of the rich have with other children is not enough to sustain an epidemic of any kind. So, but the problem... The propaganda machine has been seriously effective. I actually have seen rants on YouTube by poor people saying how dare those rich people not vaccinate their kids and endanger the children of the poor. Like, what are you talking about? Now, the other thing that's going on is the insurance companies are playing a very dangerous game of chicken. I say dangerous not for the patients. The patient's health has been tossed aside long ago. So the insurance companies are playing a dangerous game of chicken. They're publishing lots of stuff indicating that healthcare is not healthy, which is true. It's true. But don't get me wrong. And they're gambling that a sleeping public focused on the emotional needs that medical services provide, the status, the envy, the desire to punish people, will continue to fill the coffers of insurance companies through premiums and other taxes. Every healthcare premium you pay, don't. Don't even worry. This is, it is a tax. So insurance companies are gambling that citizens will believe that if they get the 99% of health care that is harmful, they can sue and, and win the lottery. Or they'll be lucky enough to get the 1% of health care that is useful. Either way, they win. And th- this, is a, uh, this is a gambling mentality that is even more extreme than your diehard Las Vegas gamblers. I mean, the casinos realize they've got to give the person at least a 60% chance or 50% chance of winning on each transaction in order to keep them gambling enough to lose everything. But not the healthcare industry. They take it off right up front. No matter what you do, your chances of, of getting health, healthy from the interaction is really pretty, pretty small. And so either way, they win. So why even talk about lowering health care costs? So what's its popularity about discussing health care costs and lowering them? Well, it sounds very good and is the perfect cover to introduce policies to cut someone else's part of the medical services dollar. Notice I did not call it health care because it's not healthy and it's not care. So it turns out that I've been around for 37 years. 37 years I've been watching front row seat, front row seat, Healthcare costs and the reduction of healthcare. So I entered the whole arena in 1979. I entered medical school and right in the door, healthcare costs have to be lowered, but we have an ethical duty to the patient, but we have a moral fiduciary responsibility to the insurance company and to society. So, of course, I had to scratch my head on that. Like, well, if the patient wants something, they pay for it. If they don't want it, they don't pay for it. Where's my duty to society or the insurance company here? I didn't get it. And just to let you know just how outrageously uh, bogus the whole health care reduction discussion is, and there's a book 
It's called How to Get What We Pay For, a Handbook for Healthcare Revolutionary. And the subtitle is, or the other book this person has, is Healthcare Beyond Reform, Doing It Right for Half the Cost. Half the cost? That's outrageous. So if he can only reduce healthcare costs by 50%, then he's failed to consider the basic question. So if the service is designed to be only a benefit to, say, one in 1,000, like, say, cholesterol, taking cholesterol medications, or one in 100, like uh, blood pressure reduction, then shouldn't we be able to easily eliminate 99% of the care and the health expenses without harming any patients, as well as help many patients by eliminating side effects, mutilation, and complications? I mean, the presumption, of course, is that what's being that medical services are safe, that they're effective, and that they're needed. And all the evidence, of course, is to the contrary. So even informed consent studies, and this was uh, one that was published uh, by Wharton, showed that if a patient was given the same information about his surgical procedure that the doctor had in medical school, the procedure, why do it, why not do it, the complications, and likelihood of success, there was a 65% refusal rate for open-heart surgery. And no evidence of adverse outcome. In other words, there's no evidence that the 65% of people who were scheduled for open-heart surgery and who refused it had any worse outcome than those who went through with the procedure. Interesting. So, so insurance companies know exactly how to control healthcare costs. That's why they have deductible. That's why they have co-pays. So when you increase a person's out-of-pocket expense, healthcare consumption plummets absolutely plummets. And if you consider that fewer than 1% of what's being done in terms of medical care is effective, then you realize that it's very important to increase health care costs to at least 99% of total cost. Now, some people, someone's going to dig in their pocket and someone's going to produce some money. That's true. That's true. That happens. Even among the poor, somebody's going to go to church and they're going to pass the hat and they're going to get together some money and go pay for health services. That's true. It will happen. But uh, healthcare consumption will absolutely plummet. And since we know, again, by the healthcare medical industrial complex's own estimates, less than 1% of interventions, or I should say interventions that are considered the standard of care benefit fewer than 1% on average, then allowing patients to, on their own, decide which 1% they want to pay for is a pretty fair bet. It works out. Now, what attempts were made in the past to cut health care costs? Quite a few attempts. We're going to run through these. C-O-N, yes, CON, that would be a CON, but it's Certificate of Need. And these programs came on the scene in the 70s to lower health costs by creating an administrative government agency to restrict the hospital's ability to buy large equipment. All this did was create a monopoly for hospitals that already purchased the very expensive equipment and prevent less politically powerful hospitals from doing from competing with them. So it did not lower health care costs at all. It just kept doctors from buying large equipment and competing with hospitals and gave like I said, put it a powerful hospital, monopoly on expensive equipment. What else happened in the 70s? Cost plus pricing came in in the 70s to protect hospitals from insurers, insurance companies who collected insurance premiums and didn't pay the hospital. And so literally, it, cre- it was mandatory price support for hospitals. And so, of course, this fueled health care costs even more. And so they kept rising. Then HMOs came on the scene in the 80s to cut healthcare costs. They were going to combine the doctor piece and the hospital piece and the drug piece and manage it efficiently. So this was the entree of the MBAs into healthcare. So what happened? Well, when HMOs came on the scene in the uh, early 80s, doctors received 20% of the healthcare dollars. And, of course, it has plummeted to around 11%. So what did the HMOs do? They just transferred the money from the doctors to the administrators, basically, and healthcare costs continued to increase. 
Then in 08, a big jump, the Affordable Care Act came on the scene in, in, 19, in 2008 when, by the way, health care revenues were beginning to uh, moderate, were actually beginning to fall. And so the Affordable Care Act actually propped up health care expenditure by forcing people who already had insurance to buy more. And say, well, it helped the uninsured. Well, it didn't help any more than 30,000 uninsured, but it raised the premium for several million people. And so this also shifted money from the citizens to the insurance companies. And so what can we learn about this and uh, how can we proceed? Well, first of all, a simple bottle of turpentine selling for not very much, $15 probably less, and sugar selling for $2 a pound, neither of which I sell, by the way, can handle just about any health care concern for about a year. This is like uh, talking about $17. So the thing you do is to sit this one out. While most medical recommendations carry anything from a 1 in 100 to a 1 in 10,000 effectiveness rate, this means you cannot win by entering the health care marketplace as a person who consumes health care as a person who pays premiums or as an employer. If there's another role you want to play, like uh, healthcare employee, uh, insurance company employee, or someone employed in the industry, or owning a clinic, or owning a drug company, those are all reasonable roles. But you cannot win by consuming or paying for healthcare. You just can't. Also, it's not possible to get your money's worth when your chance of getting what you pay for we're getting benefit from the intervention is less than 1%. This means you always pay 100 times the price tag in order to receive the outcome you think you're paying for. It's kind of like fishing for eagles in the ocean, right? It's a, it's a really low-yield thing. And, oh, in case you think nobody knows what's being done, that nobody knows medical care is ineffective, check out this website. It's called Time to Stop Ignoring Medical Evidence. Yes. And so what this uh, blog, this guy says, is that, hey, we know this stuff doesn't work. Why don't you stop doing stuff that doesn't work? So there's a novel idea. But guess what? The problem is only the um, healthcare professionals are privy to that information. So a doctor doesn't have the obligation to say this is the standard of care, but it's ineffective. So I used to think that doctors in the hospital didn't know what they were doing was harmful and ineffective. Then I started doing research. It's a mystery radio show. I said, oh, my God, what an eye-opener. So what's a person to do? This sounds really drastic, really drastic. So I'm gonna, just going to say it, and you guys can think about it, do it or not, whatever. Get a 1099 situation. Skip the health insurance experience totally. Don't touch it with a 110-foot pole. Even drugs proven to help, 35% of those who take them are suspect when you consider the cure rate for placebo is 33%. So the moral of the story is don't consume health care. For God's sake, don't pay for it in advance. And if you really think that you might want catastrophic care, so to speak, just take what would have been your health insurance premiums and just put them aside. And when your so-called catastrophe happens, I'll tell you this, the amount of money that you have in the bank is likely to be a lot more than what your insurance company would have spent on your behalf. So that is would be the thing to do. So let's take a look at questions. We have got a chat room that's uh, chatting it up. Take a look over here. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So the chat room is engaged in an incredible uh, discussion of infection and whether or not infectious organisms produce infections. All right, so let me go ahead and settle that according to what I understand. All right, so when people have infections, and so we have to say, okay, what's, what's an infection? Even in medical school, it's a tough time dis- discussing what an infection was. And so when you have an accumulation of living organisms and pus characterized by redness, heat, swelling, pain, and pus, the five signs, and you have an infection. So that, that's an infection. Now, what causes it is, is usually you need to have an organism present. 
But believe it or not, organisms are not always present. Many times when a pustule is punctured and they suck it out and they try and culture it, they find that it's aseptic. That's actually a medical term. There's a medical term for it. You know it happens frequently, right? You had to even name it. It happens so often. So the uh, medical term is aseptic. So you can actually have an aseptic, aseptic boil. But what makes these things happen is the accumulation of, of stuff. And then white cells, the body's you know, first line of defense, they go and they literally engulf bacteria, engulf viruses, engulf toxins. And these white cells, if they're not able to make their way back to the liver to dispose of all their uh, loot and all their waste, they form a boil at the skin, which eventually breaks and releases the poisons, the toxins, and the infection out into the world. That's if you're lucky. If you're not so lucky, then what happens is these uh, white cells can get stuck someplace else. They can get stuck in the kidney, or they can get stuck, in which case you have pyelonephritis, which is a kidney infection. They can get stuck uh, in the heart, in which case you have uh, endocarditis. They can get stuck in the lungs, in which case you have pneumonia. And so we just give different names to where the immune system is having an issue. The little cause of these issues, the number one cause of these issues is dehydration. So obviously, if the person was well hydrated, the body can literally flush these white cells out along the waterways. But that's not possible when you're dehydrated. So uh, the other thing, of course, malnutrition plays a role, but most infections can be A, prevented, and B, treated by hydration and cleaning out the bowels. And in the old days, uh, that would be prior to 1950, that's exactly what was done, exactly what was done. All right, so that's the answer of do organisms cause infections? Next. What is that? Dr. Yance, what do you think about biological weapons? Okay. Well, first of all, the medical industrial complex, as we now know it, medical services, is the biggest biological weapon. It is the biggest biological weapon. When you look at a kill, uh, a kill rate of 880,000 people a year, that's, that's huge. So there, there's your big biological weapon staring you in the face, and you have to decide if you want to get uh, caught up in that machine and if you want to get in the crosshairs of that biological weapon. Now, what about something we hear about in the media, which is uh, biological warfare? And another term is weaponization of, let's say, anthrax. Okay, so let's talk first about biological weapons, and then we'll talk about weaponization of anthrax. Okay, so biological weapons is basically taking a biological thing, call it a virus, a bacteria, whatever, and spreading it on a population to, to kill them, using it as a weapon. This is actually very ineffective. The reason it's ineffective is because when you dump all this stuff in the air, the dispersal rate is, is so great that the amount needed to infect a person and overcome their immune system, that level is never achieved. So dropping um, biological organisms from the air is, is, not, uh, is not a reasonable way uh, to go. So bioweapons are largely, and it's my opinion, based on just research I've done, imaginary. So don't worry about biological weapons. What about weaponization of anthrax? What does that mean? Well, weaponization means to take something that's not a weapon and make it into a weapon. So it turns out that anthrax, the actual anthrax organism itself, is capable of making a toxin or a poison, and it makes this poison to protect itself, which is reasonable. But it only makes a certain amount of poison per anthrax bacterium, and that amount of poison is not enough to reliably kill somebody. So to weaponize the anthrax, you have to cultivate a large amount of anthrax, isolate this poison, super concentrated, and then you have enough 
to kill a human being. And so when you weaponize anthrax, it doesn't mean you bring the anthrax together and put it on a postage stamp. No. It means you you breed the, the anthrax, you harvest the poison, you super concentrate the poison, then you put it on an envelope so a person encountering it will uh, die. So it's a, it's a pretty um, specific process. And the thing to understand about this is the anthrax itself cannot be weaponized because if it made enough poison to kill a person, that would be more than enough poison to kill the anthrax organism itself. So it's very impractical to... Um, so you can't weaponize uh, a biological organism that way. Now, how else can you weaponize these these organisms? You can put them, you can inject them, you can inject them into people. And this is the biggest hazard of mass vaccination: is whoever controls the vial controls the population. So it's really important not to submit to any routine injections of any kind. Like I tell people, just don't don't even submit to injections. Why? Your doctor does not know what's in that needle. And I know because I was a doctor. And quite frankly, very few times did I ever know what was in the needle. In fact, I almost never knew what was in the needle, even when I drew it up. Why? Because I was using a vial fabricated by a company I'd never even seen and shipped in. How do I really know what they put in that vial? And we realize this by, by the numerous recalls of things as harmless as heparin that are contaminated and result in the death of people because they're contaminated. So there, there are medical recalls all the time because what's supposed to be in the bottle isn't really what's in the bottle. So injections are, are definitely bad news. Okay. Now I could thought about the Zika virus. Okay, I covered this last week, but I'll cover it again. Uh, the Zika virus, uh, or the thing called the Zika virus, is really the same as dengue and the same as malaria. So if you go online and look up symptoms for Zika virus, symptoms for malaria, symptoms for dengue, you'll see there's a tremendous amount of overlap. And so what's happened is the same thing that happened with Ebola. So Ebola was basically gastroenteritis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and occasional bleeding and hemorrhaging. It's still an identical situation in the United States with the E. coli bacteria and food poisoning. And so it was an attempt then to bring in a concept, Ebola, relabel people who already had those symptoms as having Ebola as a pretense for declaring an epidemic and increasing the power of the government. That's really it. Very simple. So what's happening with the Zika virus? They're bringing in this concept called the Zika virus and they're relabeling existing cases of malaria and dengue as Zika, creating the illusion of an epidemic for the purpose of getting people to voluntarily um, yield their autonomy. And that's really all there is. So the question is, what do you do about psychovirus? What do you do if you Well, the treatment for malaria is quinine, and quinine is available at your local grocery store in the uh, form of tonic water. So if you're really worried about Zika, go buy a six-pack of tonic water, leave it in your fridge, and if you get some nausea, you get a fever, take a couple swigs, and it'll just uh, settle right down because the quinine uh, will take care of it. That's my uh, take on Zika. Okay, that is it for today, and we'll see you back next week. And as always, think happens, keep thinking, and uh, be safe and stay away from the medical industrial complex. All right, we will see you again actually Sunday.
with me I make believe 